from Infinite Guests, this is Top Score, a conversation with composers who write music for video games. I'm Emily Reese. Composer Alexander Brandon is a perfect example of the kid who got obsessed with video game music and then grew up to make a living writing it. He was the kid who took the tape recorder to the arcade, the annoying one who would like be, uh, excuse me, I know you're playing this game and I know you only have one life left, but can you just move a little to the left so I can position my tape recorder in such a way that I can get the best audio from this arcade game? That was Alex Brandon. He was super young when he got into the video game industry. He's got a great story. And he also has a great voice. I'm not the only one who thinks that, because Alex also grew up to become a voice actor. interest in video games stemmed to all the way back in the arcade days with things like Asteroids and Centipede and Tempest and but the musical interest didn't really take root until the Nintendo Entertainment System with games like Legend of Zelda and Metroid when my friend Jason would hold the phone up to his television and would tell me, oh my gosh, there's five voices of music simultaneously. And we would get really excited about it. He used a micro cassette recorder to record stuff. I would go to arcades with a handheld cassette recorder and hold the recorder up to the speakers and annoy people that would be playing the game because I had to record the music. Uh, about, about as geeky as you can imagine. But up until that point, I had been doing fairly traditional music training, such as uh, I was in choir in church from the time I was about seven. And my mom had me take piano lessons for a while with a really, really great teacher who was a fantastic organist as well. Finally, in around 87, I got an AdLib synthesizer card, which was the first, and this was for Christmas, uh, a Christmas present for my folks. And that was the first thing that enabled me to really enter composition as opposed to practicing uh, performance. And so that's where I diverged from the super talented players and performers out there uh, into the compositional realm. So explain exactly what that piece of equipment did. What, what was it? What did it enable you to do? Well, the AdLib was released by a company in Canada, and oddly enough, a music teacher at a college, I think, designed and developed it. And what he wanted to do was give people a better experience on computers with their games than just the PC speaker, which had the ability to do simple beeps uh, of various tones. And you could get into, say, Microsoft Basic and program pieces of music by indicating just single notes or arpeggios. But the AdLib had uh, expanded that with an OPL3 chip, which was produced or which was made by Yamaha. And that was a simplified version of the DX7. Which was found in a ton of pop songs like... Uh, oh, the synthesizer, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, the like Dire Straits used it. Van Halen, I'm pretty sure, used that in addition to their Oberheims. And it was all over the place. But a simplified, cheaper version was put into the ad lib. And you had nine voices. You had a choice of nine or 11 voices, depending on whether you wanted to add sort of a, a specific percussion section to that. And that's where things just exploded because you could get things to sound, you know, uh, you know, melodic and interesting and have people sort of hum along. I mean, it was still considered, 
I hate to keep saying beeps and boops. We, we, we say that all the time anyway, even if it's sort of a, a, a tongue-in-cheek type term for uh, video games. But yeah, it, uh, the, that's really what made you know, people say like, hey, I can, I can write music. And the format in the software which, in which you wrote was not musical notes the way you might have done with Sibelius or Finale, uh, the sort of traditional methods or yeah, heck – uh, pencil and paper. Who knew? Um, <laughs> but it would be through a piano roll format, and you would just draw the notes on this big grid. And the visual format made it easy for younger people to just sort of get come to terms with diving straight into melody, harmony, counterpoint, all of those you know theory principles that you learn in school. But it was a completely new way of doing it, and it was so easy to do. You could just churn music out, and that's that. That was just incredible. I would imagine this is how your life goes in my mind is that you get this you get this card in your computer and then you just write a ridiculous amount of video game music and you must have started sharing it with people because you you got into the industry so young right yeah, I think I was 17, 18 or so. The way that that happened was was not as much with the music sharing. It was being able to piggyback on an existing project. Uh, my friend Jason Emery, who uh, is now working at PopCap as one of their senior programmers. I mean, the guy's a just a genius at game design and programming. Uh, but he developed this uh, this engine that would make layers of graphics go on top of each other at different speeds, giving the illusion of depth. And that was pretty impressive back in the day. So we did some simple artwork. We weren't artists ourselves, but we made a demo, sent it to Epic Games, or back then Epic Mega Games. And uh, young Cliff Blazinski played our demo and said, wow, these guys really should we should publish this. We should add better artwork because this reminds me of a game called Xanic for the Nintendo Entertainment System. And that's where both of our careers took off was really thanks to uh, thanks to Cliff and Robert Allen, our producer, and Tim Sweeney, who were all sort of uh, helping run the much smaller Epic at the time. And so the ad-lib music that I was producing went into the game but got augmented by a German programmer, Andre- Andreas Molnar, who made it sound like a Sega Genesis. And back then, the Genesis was sort of one of the pinnacles of really, really cool, awesome FM game music. It, it I don't know what he did or how, but he made it he made the OPL3 chip on the AdLib just sound like a, a Sega Genesis, and that was just that was magic to me because I was just it, it just it was richer. It had a lot you could add a lot more texture and a lot more effects. So yeah, and then that's that's essentially how that happened. So he took your music and basically remastered it to make it sound different. Yeah, yeah, and and he added his own music, being a composer in his own right, and uh, yeah, it, it it blew it out of the water. PC Gamer and a bunch of other magazines said, you know, they they called the music out and, you know, said that, like, well, we're not sure how they managed to do this on an ad lib. But, yeah, I have him to thank uh, greatly for that. And the name of the game was? The name of the game was Tyrion. What music inspired you when you were younger? You talked a little bit about Metroid and, and some of those soundtracks, but let's get in, dig into that a little more. 
The first music that I listened to before I even heard anything on the radio was influenced by my mother, Cynthia. And she did uh, – well, she we had a record player and I would listen to John Philip Sousa. I would listen to The Magic Flute. I would listen to uh, – oh, yeah, uh, Rhapsody in Blue. Uh, Gershwin I, has to be one of my favorites of all time. And I, in fact, with my own kids, I, uh, I'll put it on their iPod playlists when they go to sleep. Because oddly enough, it's, it's weird. It's, it's, even though it's, got, uh, you know, it's very dynamic, but it, uh, when I would fall asleep to it, it just uh, it seemed to lull me to, to sleep. Uh, those were that was my knowledge of music for the longest time because they weren't into pop or rock or anything that was on the radio. And then I I heard music like Mister Mister and fell in love with that and started taping songs off the radio, Prince and uh, pretty much whatever was popular on you know that was on uh, the 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 top forty. I would uh, you know I was really into. And then uh, and then of course movie soundtracks. Uh, one of the first records that I or the two of the first records that they bought me in addition to the stuff they already had that I just mentioned. One of them was Star Wars. Uh, the other was Chuck Mangione live at the Hollywood Bowl. Nice. Um, yeah. <laughs> not not yeah. You know, very very different, of course. Oh. But uh, but you know those were the days when I would just sit in a chair. Put the records on and flip through the pages of these. Uh, you know, you'd have several pages of, of movie stills that would be in Star Wars, and you'd have several pages of stories about the rehearsal and and how they managed to get the music for orchestra with uh, Chuck. And those instilled again a very deep, profound sense of respect and admiration for performance and and live orchestra and live music it's just that they they instilled themselves into in my head as in terms of just sort of the this bar to go for mainly because uh, you know with Star Wars of course it's just it's it's so iconic it's it's hard to really find any anything that people don't like about it uh, but in terms of the Chuck Mangione thing I mean it's a live recording and it doesn't really sound live. That's insanely rare. That's like you, you don't really hear live recordings that uh, that you know that that aren't prepared and and rehearsed for days, weeks in advance. That that come off that professional and that crisp and and that well practiced. So both of those things sort of stuck in my head as as, as major influences. And you've had opportunities now in your career to work with live orchestra, like the Northwest Symphony in Seattle. What's that been like? And and talk to me a little bit about that experience. That started, the working with the Sinfonia started thanks to Enon Zur. Oh, Enon. <laughs> he's a great he's a great guy. I'm asked to impersonate him all the time. Well, we can get to that later. Oh my but. god, you're so good at that. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> no, he's a, he's he's a, he's a great friend and colleague. He has been for years. Uh but but I I'd heard his stuff and was recommended to me by by uh, Josh Sawyer and I listened to his stuff. I really liked it and and so I I called him up and he launched into his, you know, really well-practiced spiel about uh, not only you know, him providing really good orchestral sampled 
tracks, but saying, hey, let's record live. And at the time, I was like, that's going to be too expensive, isn't it? He's like, no, not Well, It depends. Here's here's what the budget would be. And it's probably not as much as you might think. And it, as it turns out, it really wasn't like the uh, I had, you know, these these ridiculous, fantastical notions of hundreds of thousands of dollars. It really wasn't wasn't along those lines. So. So I, I, I pitched it to my uh, the studio director, and he said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. We went with it, went up there. Uh, he did the conducting, but I worked with the orchestrator, Paul Taylor, on the revamp of the theme, which, of course, is iconic in and of itself. Brad Fuller is the guy that originally penned that for the arcade game, but I, you know, I put some new spins on it. And uh, some, you know, a bunch of additional pieces that, again, all of that richness and, and texture that I that I remember was, you know, I was, you know, that's, uh, it's miraculously attainable now that you know you're actually recording live. So that was that was amazing, and I have him to thank for that. You do a lot of voiceover work as well. Can we talk about that for a moment? How did that start? The voiceover started at the behest of my wife Jeanette. <laughs> She uh, well, there was there were other people that had told me I was good at it. I sort of put it by the wayside, and finally, um, Jeanette said, "Like you know, why aren't you doing voice voice acting?" <laughs> and I was like, "You know, I really that's a really good question. I guess I'll, I'll I won't be you know like oh that's not it's it's nothing or be whatever it is about it uh, or dismissive or, or off putting. So now I do I do." commercials for Dell. I'll, I did a National Geographic thing. Once hidden behind the Iron Curtain, Russia is opening one of its most guarded institutions to the world. Uh, and uh, I've done work on games such as, you know, Skyrim, DC Universe Online. I bet it's fun. It's a lot of fun. It's, it's, it's not as much fun, of course, as being on a set or being on a stage, but you get to create characters and add to their personalities in ways that writers and directors really don't potentially imagine. And in fact, you also influence the behavior of the animators and the texture artists. I mean, I think Andy Serkis has a similar type situation with uh, with saying that voice acting is, you know, it should be taken just as seriously as other kinds of acting. But of course, he also does motion and performance capture. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a huge amount of fun. observed fascinating things in the industry and mainly that we've got what appears to be a divergence of AAA games that where a lot of people and I count myself as one of them because I've been an audio director when we hear okay uh, let's get this composer from TV or film and let's get this orchestra together because this is the epitome of what great game music needs to be it's easy to make those assumptions and i you know it's it's very admittedly it's it's very difficult to imagine right off the bat what would be more rich in texture or deep in terms of scope than an orchestra but on the other 
uh, side of the coin. You've got independent projects that don't have access to an orchestra that maybe they'll use a string quartet sometimes, or they'll you know they use uh, single instrumentalists, but they're you know they they have a much more limited palette uh, from which to work. But they're doing these incredible sounds. And 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 be, from the influence, I mean, you've got you've got people that are able to mix these to a certain degree. Banner Saga is a is a really easy one to just throw out there uh, that that Austin Wintory did. And you you take a look at Banner Saga and the rich and texture he was able to achieve with that, and then look at Monaco, which is just essentially a piano score. So the the imagination that it needs to influence everyone should come from the same spot as like what what are we going to do to really drive the power of this score? And it could be the combination of an orchestra and synthesizers. It could be synthesizers with like just really strange samples that are recorded live by an orchestra. I know Jason Graves recorded some insanely bizarre sounds for his Dead Space soundtracks. So that kind of thinking, those are the kind of people that really, I think, you know, they're not really, sta- you know, they, they don't do status quo, and they're looking not only at how to create new sounds, new ways of expressing emotion, new ways of trying to drive the player's influences uh, or be able to have a decision gate that the player is at in the game in which they're going to change the course of the game and reflect that in the music. All of those things, when I hear composers talking about those core principles as opposed to well, I just yeah, let's let, let's go to let, let's go to London, right? <laughs> the tool sets are all there. And the, 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 the real trick, obviously, is not just to say think out of the box, but really go deep into what makes the game unique in its own way and make the, make the music reflect that. I know that's a really long-winded way of, of, of talking about this divergent existence, but, but, I, but I think we're at a crossroads. I think the crossroads is, what is AAA games, and how is that going to be its own unique art form and unique media form of expression? Thank you so much for talking with me today. Hey, thank you. It was really great. It's at long last we connect. At long <laughs> last we have succeeded. We are victorious in our attempt for interviews. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Top Score from Infinite Guest. You can learn more about Alexander Brandon and see a full playlist from this episode at infiniteguest.org. Top Score's production assistants are Pierce Huxtable and Nina Podock. Mark Hintz mixes each episode. Top Score is supported in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts, Artworks. You can follow Top Score on Twitter and Facebook at Top Score Podcast. That's Top Score. I'm Emily Reese.